Church, if you could please open up to the book of Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 3. As you turn there, I want to read to you an article that was published about 10 days ago. Uh, it's published by the Institute for Family Studies in conjunction with a Gallup research poll. So if you know research polls, Gallup is pretty well known. Well, they partnered with the Institute for Family Studies and released this uh, survey. The title of the article is Parenting is the Key to Adolescent Mental Health. So it talks about mental health of adolescents, and I could read all the details to you of how they performed the study, but that's boring. I'll leave this here for you if you would like to see it for yourself, and I can even email you a copy of this. Uh, just let me know. But I want to read some observations from their research towards the end here, almost in summary. It says this, Years of research have established that parenting and the parent-child relationship is of paramount importance to the well-being and psychological functioning of adolescence. In particular, the late Stanford University psychologist Eleanor Maccabee her colleagues and students found that children raised by responsive but limit-setting parents have the best outcomes. They described this style of parenting as authoritative and distinguished it from permissive and authoritarian forms of parenting, which were not as successful. Children raised in authoritative homes are more likely to exhibit self-control, social competence, success in school, compliance with rules and reasonable social norms, and even exhibit more confidence and creativity. Hundreds of subsequent empirical studies show that depression, anxiety, and behavioral problems are significantly lower when children experience this form of authoritative parenting. The study goes on to comment on the modern trend of working around parents to solve some of these problems and how this actually may be causing more damage instead of bringing about greater good. But the point that I want to use this article for this morning is simply this. Structure and authority are a good, important part of God's creation design. We see that revealed here in the survey. The children that do better mentally are those that have a stable, structured upbringing in familial authority. But due to sin, what happens is these structures are often corrupted. We take God's good gift, just like everything else, all sin in general, we take God's good gift and corrupt it and twist it. Or on the flip side, due to our sin, we can sometimes begin to idolize these systems and structures relying on them for things that ultimately come from God. So in light of all of this, here's our main idea this morning. Humanity's ultimate hope is not found in imperfect systems, but in a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. As a reminder, our current series, we're going through Micah, the title of our series is Who is Like Our God? It's a word play from Micah's name, Who is Like Jehovah, Who is Like Yahweh. In chapter 1, we saw a holy God who was ready to judge Israel's idolatry. In chapter 2, we saw a just God who puts a price on rebellion. And this week in chapter 3, we're going to see an honorable God who expects and rules with integrity. 
In light of that, hopefully you were there at Micah chapter 3. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word, just as a reminder that we are about to read the divine, holy word of God. Micah chapter 3, I'll begin in verse 1. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired every word that we just read, I pray that you would take those words, Lord, and speak them now like a bullet into our hearts, piercing us with the truth of your word, that it might bear fruit within us, that we might be further conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. This morning, our passage has three clear, pretty equal divisions. Throughout the prophet Micah, God is addressing Israel's sin. And in chapter 3, we see God address Israel's judicial leaders, the religious leaders. And then the third section, he puts them together and addresses them both. And each unit, each of the three units, kind of follows a similar pattern. God exposes their corruption, and then he responds to them accordingly. So this morning, the points of the sermon are going to mirror these three equal sections. We'll see judicial corruption. We'll see religious corruption. But then we will see divine honor. So first, verses 1 through 4, judicial corruption. 
corruption. In verse 1, Micah addresses the heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Micah is addressing a very specific type of leader here. These are judicial leaders. The word rulers here in the ESV is shared by most other translations, but sometimes it's translated officials or princes or judges or even one translation I saw said magistrates. So that word combined with the phrase, is it not for you to know justice, tells us that we are talking about ruling, judgment-giving types of leaders. It's literally their job to know what's right and wrong and then to judge and rule over the people accordingly. It is for them to know justice, but they don't. Instead, in verse 2, hate the good and love the evil. They hate the good and love the evil, though they should know and love justice. So what happens next is a graphic description of their evil, which they love. I'm not going to elaborate on these descriptions. They are perfect the way that they are. But I do want you to direct your attention to verses 2 through 3. And just look at this. Look at the repetition of skin and flesh and bones. Look at the description for what is happening here. The governing authorities are figuratively cannibalizing their fellow countrymen. These actions are similar to what we looked at last week where they're taking advantage of one another so that they can benefit at the expense of others. Here, the leaders are satisfied by figuratively feeding on the people. Now, at this point, there should be at least two feelings welling up inside of us. Number one, anger against these types of corrupt leaders. And number two, sympathy for the one who is oppressed. God's people keep crying out to their leaders for justice, but their leaders aren't giving them justice. They're crying out for relief, and their leaders aren't giving them relief. And their condemnation will match their crime. They offered no hope and no help at their greatest time of need. So now God will do likewise. Look at verse 4. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer. It says God will hide his face from them at that time. And why is it? Because they have made their deeds evil. I would imagine that the Israelites, hearing this message of condemnation at this point, would probably be responding this way. That's horrific. We would never do that. I would never do something like that. Whoever did that, they deserve their punishment, but that's not me. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then, to cover his tracks, he has her husband, Uriah, killed on the front lines. In chapter 12, God responds by sending Nathan, a prophet, to David. Now listen to what happens. I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who would come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David doesn't realize the trap that he is walking into when he hears this story. David's reaction here is probably, I would imagine, very similar to how the Israelites might respond to a message like this from Micah. Who would do such a thing? Whoever did that, they deserve to die. In fact, they should have to pay fourfold for two reasons. Number one, they did such a thing. And number two, they had no pity. These leaders deserve it. Now listen to Nathan's next words to King David in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the man. He says this in verse 9. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. Now imagine Israel with Micah. Micah, we would never do something like that. And then Micah saying, you're the man. You're the man. Maybe you think you would never cannibalize your fellow countrymen, but you're doing it every single day. Israel had begun to use people as a means to their own depraved ends. It is the dehumanizing of a person. Instead of a person being a soul made in the image of God, an individual becomes an object. We can relate to this today. This ideology is still alive and well. From the pornography and sex trafficking industry, which views people as objects for pleasure, to political systems, which view people as votes, to popular church growth strategies, which view people as mere prospects or numbers, to ideologies like critical theory, which view people as an intersection of a number of traits or descriptions, this ideology is everywhere. It takes a person and reduces them to something that we are trying to obtain from that person. And they become our means to have that thing. Consider social media. According to a recent whistleblower testimony, Facebook apparently knew of some of these destructive effects of their platform specifically for younger minds, but they supposedly exploited those effects in order to increase ad revenue. 
Now, regardless of the level of accuracy of that testimony, at the very least, these social media giants do not see our kids like we do. I see my daughter as a young woman. These giants see her as a consumer. And they're going to do what they need to do to get that consumer. Because the more views they get, the more ad revenue they get. They are not going to think for her well-being like I will. She has become something else. When engagement is down, we have to fix the problem no matter the cost. In a consumer society, people become less and less like people and more and more like consumers. I read in one place where a commentator looking at this same passage said that the problem with the consumer society is eventually, without the presence of God, the consumers become consumers and consume one another. The enterprise consumes itself. That person is a potential paycheck, is how it starts. But it eventually turns into, that person is keeping me from getting what I want. This leads to cancel culture, blackmail, abuse, violence. The consumer culture begins to consume its own. And this is what we're seeing here in Israel with these judicial leaders. They see people who are hurt, but that doesn't matter because I'm hungry. And they consume themselves. Whether or not Israel recognized her problem, God's verdict was just. You didn't answer your victims when they cried for help. I will not answer you when you cry. That's the judicial corruption in verses 1 through 4. Then entering into verse 5, we see religious corruption in verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me... I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The religious corruption here mirrors the judicial corruption in the first four verses. The prophets, they had a job to do, but they weren't doing it. Just like the judicial leaders, it was for them to know justice. With the religious leaders, it was for them to know God's will and to declare it. To hear God's word and to speak it to the people. But instead of being led by God, they were led by their own well-being. When they were well-fed, they prophesied peace. Oh, God loves this. Wonderful. Keep doing this. And when they weren't well-fed, when things weren't going their way, that's when they prophesied the bad. This is almost like a manufactured system of karma for those underneath the care of the religious leaders. Treat them well and you'll be blessed. Don't and you won't. So in verse 6, just like with the judicial leaders, God's verdict is just. It is honorable. You won't speak for me. 
then I won't speak to you. You won't relay my message, I won't give it to you anymore. The light of God's revelation will vanish from them. It'll be like they're wandering around in the dark and groping, and they can't see anymore. They're groping for a word from the Lord that will never come to them. But then in contrast to their condemnation, we see Micah here in verse 8. He says, as for me, you may have darkness, but as for me, I am filled with power. Micah, as a prophet, does see. He's filled with power in God's spirit. Why? Because he relays what God says. He carries out his office as he's supposed to. He pursues justice, unlike the judicial leaders. Micah is declaring God's word, unlike the religious leaders. Instead of viewing people as a means to an end, he views them as God's created beings, worthy of respect, endowed with rights, and in need of God. And he treats them accordingly. So what's the point of this contrast here between Micah and these prophets? It's simply this. God does not reward evil. He rewards good. God does not reward evil. He rewards good. Now, before you cry foul, I don't mean reward in the way the world might define it. I'm not saying if you do good, you will live a long, healthy life with more money than you can count. This isn't some prosperity gospel here. If money, riches, and health, and other material blessings are your reward, then take caution. In the words of Jesus, you will gain the world and lose your soul. So then what's the reward here? The reward is God's presence with his people. Did you notice in both of these indictments, they're relational? Both of the punishments, the removal of God's blessing, it's relational. God's saying, in effect, I will no longer be your God because you are no longer my people. You love the evil and you hate the good, so I will no longer be with you wherever you go. I will no longer shelter you under my wings. I will no longer speak to you. I will no longer be your strong tower. But Micah, though living in the midst of a rebellious people, will be blessed by God's presence. He will have power and justice and might that comes from the fact that the Spirit of the Lord fills him. Have you ever noticed that there are times when you may feel so close to the Lord and then at other times he just feels distant? I have. Sometimes this distance exists because we are simply not walking with the Lord. You might say, but I am. I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. I don't miss a meal without saying the blessing. I'm walking with the Lord. But walking with God is more than performing mere ritual. Religious rituals is not what it means to walk with God. It is to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments. Listen to these verses and see if you notice a pattern. Leviticus 26, 
3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. Deuteronomy 26, 17. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments. 1 Kings 6, 12. Concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them. Nehemiah 10, 29. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord. 2 John 1.6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. 1 John 2, verses 3 and 6, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Followers of Jesus don't just read their Bibles. They walk like Jesus. There are too many people that say, I follow Jesus, and their understanding of following Jesus is, I know some things this book says. But you look nothing like Jesus. Hear the condemnation in Micah. You judicial leaders, it was for you to know good, but you hate it, and you don't do it. You religious leaders, it was for you to declare my word, but you don't. You declare what you want to declare. I will remove my presence from you. We are Christians. It is for us to walk like Christ, not merely to know. And God will not bless us as Christians when we don't. If you aren't walking, you aren't following. And if we aren't following, it's no mystery why we don't feel close. God doesn't bless disobedience with the blessing of his active presence in our lives. Now, this does not mean that you can become a Christian and then lose your salvation because you weren't walking fast enough to keep up with Jesus. It doesn't mean that we can fall from grace and that now there is a kryptonite that defeats God's salvific purposes. God will always dwell within the believer. But it's precisely because of this wonderful truth that God will not let the believer feel his presence when he or she is walking contrary to Christ. We feel a way. God dwells in us, and we ought to walk in his ways. So we see this judicial corruption and religious corruption. Now we come to our third section where they are combined together, and we see divine honor beginning in verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now we reach the joint verdict against all of the leaders of Israel combined. We see here the rulers 
who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity and give judgment for a bribe. We also see the priests and the prophets here who teach for a price and practice divination for money. Now, these statements here are lumped together in verse 11. There's kind of a triad here. They're all very similar. They have a similar structure. It's a group of people, what they do, and why it's corrupt. Look in verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Now, in the English, the prepositions here for a bribe, for a price, are at the end of the sentence. But in the Hebrew, that phrase is in the emphatic position, which just means this. When you read this sentence, I want to emphasize this phrase, for a bribe. The order is changed. Read literally, it sounds like this. The heads, for a bribe, judge. The priests, for a price, teach. The prophets, for money, seek the Lord. They're corrupt. They are to be doing these things for the Lord and for the good of his people. They are to be ruling for the Lord, on behalf of the Lord, for the good of his people. But they aren't. They're doing it for money, every single one of them. Instead of doing what is right, they say, well, what's in this for me? If I don't see a benefit, I don't see a reason to show up. Again, isn't this us? <laughs> or is it just me? We hear of opportunities, maybe even to serve at church. Well, I don't see how that opportunity relates to me. What's in it for me? How do I benefit from that? In the workplace... I need you to take on a few extra responsibilities. Will there be a raise? Because this is what we agreed for. I'm not saying it's always, I'm not making a definitive judgment here. But think about your own hearts. How often is the first question, what do I get out of it? The point isn't that these situations don't exist. The point is that our hearts are inclined in a direction. Our hearts are inclined towards us. We are inclined towards selfishness rather than servanthood. Our thoughts revolve around how can I benefit instead of how can I serve for the benefit of others. And when we don't benefit, that's when discord begins. Family fights. We have them in our house. Well, I didn't get that out. Y'all pick up your toys. Well, I didn't touch that. I didn't do this. That's not fair. Well, he got to do this, and I, I don't get to do that. Church fights. Workplace fights. Relational fights. We are selfish rather than servants. In verse 12, we see the Lord's climactic judgment. They say, no disaster is going to come upon us. The Lord is in the midst of us. What they mean is they're looking back to the temple and they're saying, look, there's God's presence right there. 
Nothing's going to happen to us. We have, we have the God living with us. Earlier, when I read this passage, the list of verses back here in 1 Kings, concerning the house that you were building, that was the temple. So God promises, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, I will be among you. But Israel abandons the Lord. So what does he do in verse 12? It will not be there anymore. You may see a building. You've driven through towns before. We see old rundown buildings. They're cracked. The walls are mostly down. You see the foundation and grass starts to grow up over the pieces. He's saying the destruction here is going to be so bad that they're going to be able to plow the dirt beneath where the temple is and it's going to be a forest. It will be gone from you. Where there was once a beautiful temple representing God's presence among his people, there will only be woods. God will no longer be among his people. So again, here we're reminded of true truths. When we hear this condemnation, we may think that's not right, but it only serves to expose our corruption. We are corrupt, and God is not. He will not allow sin to reign, but he will execute honorable justice. We make corrupt leaders and corrupt rules and corrupt systems so that we can benefit the most from it. And we see it all around us. God, however, is honorable. He is an honorable leader who makes honorable rules and desires for us to live under these honorable systems in an honorable way. It's for all these reasons that he sent Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have a hope that no earthly system can provide. When we read this passage, just another reminder, when you put sinful people in a good system, what do we do with it? We corrupt it. Our hope is not ultimately in these systems. Many of us live as Americans as though our only hope is getting the right people in place. If we can fix the system, everything will be good. There is only one solution to the system. Jesus Christ is Lord. Until everyone under a system operates on that foundation, the system will break down. It's like allowing a slow drip of water into a machine. You won't notice a difference, but over time, that rust will begin to develop and those pieces will corrode. And if you just let it go on and on and on, eventually you have to throw the whole system out because it's too far gone. We've been so busy trying to replace the parts, we haven't stopped the leak. Now, I'm not saying the Bible's chief priority is making sure America survives, because it is not. The Bible's chief priority is the Lordship of Christ. That's what the Bible is about. This isn't just about Israel's well-being, though God is still God of his people. This is making sure that God is honored as God. And we need to do the same. We can only do that through Jesus Christ. He is a perfect ruler who rules over his people with righteousness and equity. 
rather than sacrificing us on the altar of his selfish desire, he has sacrificed himself that we might be set free from sin and its consequences. He's the perfect leader. This is where our hope is. We don't have to worry that God might vacate our hearts like he vacated Israel because we have an enduring hope that lasts forever. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in light of Christ's perfect authority in our lives, how are we to live? In submission to his commands and in submission to worldly authority. Think, wait, what? You just said authority is bad. What what, what do you mean in submission to worldly authority? The fact that worldly authority is corruptible doesn't negate its origin from God or his instructions for us to submit, both to judicial leaders and religious leaders. Just because we can corrupt what God created for good does not mean that it is bad. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Judicial leaders. Now Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Religious leaders. See, the response to bad authority is not no authority. It's good authority. The answer to bad authority is not get rid of authority. It's good authority. And God has given us authority to be used for his good. Are these uses of authority always perfect? No. That's why we need Jesus, the perfect authority. But it doesn't negate that these still exist and that we are still to submit. The point isn't to abandon authority, but to use it properly. That's what Israel was not doing well. And the leaders were corrupt, and all Israel underneath them were corrupt as well because of it. So we see that bad authority leads to corruption, but good authority can lead to life and flourishing. We see that when King David is reigning and Israel is growing and everything is going wonderfully. We see that in our country where we had these times of turmoil and you have the right leadership making the right decisions and everything just, just, is just blooming. But then when that shift happens and that authority is not good, what happens? Decay and destruction. Authority must be used properly. This means that when we have it, we should exercise it like our honorable God with integrity. And when we're under it, we submit to it as to Christ. So church, whether we are in positions of authority or not, 
May we treat people like Jesus has treated us, not as an object or a means to our own ends, but as souls made and loved by God. May we submit to Christ as Lord, not merely giving him lip service, but walking in obedience to his commands. May we not idolize imperfect systems of authority in our lives, but place our ultimate hope in Christ. And finally, may we submit to the imperfect authorities in our lives, knowing that they have been instituted by God for his glory and for our good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we read in the prophet Micah, these prophecies from your mouthpiece all those years ago, we cannot help but be struck with a terrifying reality. Things have not changed. Lord, time passes. Nations rise and fall. But the same problems that have plagued humanity from the very beginning still plague us today. And Lord, while that can be demoralizing, it also brings us hope. Because if the problem has not changed, then the solution has not changed. And you have given us the solution the perfect solution to our sin problem in Jesus Christ. He exists as the Lord and Savior of all those who will turn to Him in repentance and faith, and you have given Him to us to redeem us from our corruption and to heal us from our infection, Lord. Would you help us to live in full submission to him, not bypassing him and putting our hope in broken people, but placing our hope in him, our perfect Savior. In the meantime, Lord, as we submit to Jesus Christ, walking in his commandments, following his rules and statutes, would you strengthen us to submit to authorities here? both judicial and religious, Lord, knowing that you have given them to us for our good and for your glory, knowing that they are to be a reflection of your authority. Lord, forgive us when we imperfectly exercise authority that you've given us as mothers and fathers with our children, as supervisors or managers in our work, whether we're in politics, whether it's in church life, Lord, forgive us when we don't exercise authority properly. Help us to honor you in our submission to authority and our use of it. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.